Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. It is Samson here. If this is your first time in this neck of the woods, we interview thinkers, scientists and doers of all sorts who can give you insights into how to live your life as fully as possible. And uh, I'll start off with a few very leading questions. Uh, Do you want to feel really alive? Do you want to feel like you're living a meaningful life? Do you want to feel more connected to your values? (laughs) Imagine if you said no, totally failed. Uh, but for many people, the answer to that is yes. And so we have got the right interviewee for you. We're going to speak to Professor Tanya Lerman from Stanford University. She is top dog. She was elected a fellow for the Academy, American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She was president of the Society for Psychological Anthropology. She's won the, a Guggenheim Award uh, and uh, she's even delivered the Henry Morgan Lecture, which is, according to Wikipedia, the most important annual lecture in the field of anthropology. She specialises in studies of modern day witches and charismatic Christians, uh, looking at how culture shapes their spiritual experiences but what relevance does that have to your life what we really wanted to get her on uh, to discuss is because she breaks down the practices which these spiritual communities use to feel closer to what's most important to them their god uh, gods or whatever spirit they might be but when looking at it from like a like practice point of view like a step-by-step point of view you can see they can be adapted so that anyone, no matter what you believe in, can use these techniques so that you could feel more alive, more creative, more meaningful, or whatever is most important to you, which sounds pretty good. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way. We're going to welcome my co-host, James. We're going to welcome Tanya Lerman. And uh, so here she is. Hello, Tanya. How is it going? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from uh, California, near San Francisco in Stanford. And what's the sort of general pandemic setting where you are at the moment? Well, it's sort of wonderful. You know, I mean, the p- pandemic is quite splendid if you weren't, you know, apart from the fear that the planet's going to come to an end. But splendid from which point of view? I would love to... Well, I mean, it's apart from the fact that people are dying and I'm worried about you know, the, the, the California burn, burning down, and I'm worried about, um, you know, the future of today's democracy. It's kind of lovely to be in your house and, and not have to travel. And we got two pandemic puppies and uh, who no doubt you will hear at some point during oh, this. Oh, yay. They're quite wonderful. And we actually got them on the day that the uh, shutdown was uh, announced by by um, the local counties. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of, you know, apart from being feeling that Zoom is a little bit much, it's, um, you know, it's it's sort of peaceful. It's oddly peaceful. I've been, I've been able to spend more time gardening. Oh, well, that sounds great. And we are both James and I are super excited to speak to you because uh, you uh, wrote this book, How God Becomes Real. And I saw a link to it on Twitter and I, I wrote an excited all caps tweet and which is pretty much as big an endorsement as you can get. And then I got the book and I just totally loved it because it goes and looks at what religion does and how congregations work in a really practical way but like really getting into the the feelings and for us who are both looking at how you can learn from religion this was more of a a sort of guide than a uh than an anthropological text and before we get to that uh, i'd love to go and ask you about what was uh, your sort of religious spiritual or sort of philosophical background in your childhood well i kind of grew up in your neck of the woods in that i grew up as a unitarian um, I in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Um, my father, um, my father's father was a Christian scientist, and my father became a doctor, which you're not really supposed to do within the Christian science faith. And my mother's father was a Baptist pastor, and she became a kind of black sheep of the family. And so I sort of grew up in this world, and, and I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighbor, Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So I grew up 
in, in, as a Shabbos Goy, as it's sometimes called. So there's a you know an Orthodox Jewish household. Um, you uh, express your commitment to your creator by not doing certain things between sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday, but it's totally okay to have a little Gentile girl come over and turn on the electricity and you know turn buttons off and on. And I and I would do that. And so I grew up in this you know world of good people, um, all of whom had very different understandings of the ultimately real. And so I think that's why I became so interested. And then from your uh, anthropological studies, and there's probably many, it'd be hard to pick one, what would be uh, one lesson, insight, technique, practice that you think the secular world could learn from religious communities? Well, I, mean, I think the take home message for me was that you know, back in my first project with middle-class folks in London who called themselves witches and magicians and druids and goodness knows what, um, I had gone into that world being interested in um, sort of why people believed in things and how what they believed could be true. And I sort of was expecting kind of a way of interpreting experience, which, you know, I certainly found. But I was really struck by the fact that if you did what they said you should do. And they would say things like, you know, you wouldn't understand magic unless you practiced. You wouldn't know magic unless you practiced. And this is a kind of a magic in which the earth is imagined as alive and force, you know, is imagined to move through the, the, the world and you can manipulate that force with your mind. And I learned that when you did what they invited you to do, you would feel that force. You would feel, you would feel different. Um, you would have spiritual experiences. And so then when later I began to spend time in other faith communities and most recently in evangelical practice, I began to pay attention to what people did. And again, I saw that it wasn't, you know, belief is obviously important, but what really was important in understanding what it was like to be a person of faith were practices and how practices changed people. And that if you didn't, you know, so first of all, that teaches you something important, which is that practice can change your experience. So certain kinds of practices help you to experience the world as differently from, it, from the way it might appear to be. And second of all, that belief per se is not, you know, not an, arguably not the most important thing about faith. And that's fascinating to me. So just to, uh, just so that I understand and our listeners understand what you're actually saying here, you began to do the practices mm -hmm. and your your experience of life changed in a particular yes. way. Yes. But that doesn't mean necessarily you began to believe the reality of the explanations that those communities gave for why experience changed. Is that fair? Exactly. So that so I, I remember this one afternoon where uh, I, mean, I was really, you know, we anthropologists, we throw ourselves into the world we're trying to understand. And so here are all these people who will take as their model Karanunos and Caridwin and Athena and Zeus and I mean, these, these images from sort of the, the you know, Greek pantheon and the you know, Celtic pantheon and goodness knows what. I had gone to a... Uh, I remember having gone to um, a weekend with a great magus in, in this little, you know, in this social world. It was he was, was kind of kind of looked like Merlin. He was my if yeah you know, if I so were cool. Gonna, yeah, you know, I was gonna, if I was going to conjure up somebody who looked like Merlin, it would have kind of looked like him. And and so he was this sort of dramatic figure, and he had a shock of white hair, and he would walk around in a, in you know in a magical robe, and he would lead us in these different practices and mostly what people would call path workings, which were these vivid imaginative recreations using all your inner senses of some world that he was trying to draw our attention to. So in this case, he was really interested in the Arthurian legend and so stories of King Arthur. And he was also interested in tarot cards, which are these, you know, these, these, these sort of cards that are often used in the occult they're a long history they're like playing cards with an extra court card and then like 20, 21 22 other extra cards and people will use them for divination 
and we had done these um, you know exercises in which we had you know, these these cards are images of have different images like I've got an image of the hermit and an image of which is an old you know an old man cloaked in gray leaning on a stick and then there's another image of the, the moon which is like two dogs barking at the moon with a the stream running down the center and you know at least in one of the drawings and depictions and you know and I and, and we've been led on various sort of daydream-like exercises in which we tried to experience the hermit and we tried to experience the moon and we tried to experience the priestess and the high priest and goodness knows what and I was sort of struck by you know being being on this weekend um, somewhere in southwest England and, um, you know, and I would, it would have an event and I'd go for a walk and I, I would see an old man leaning on a, on a stick. I would see two dogs at the front door kind of barking in a moon as if they were barking at the moon. So I would kind of have that experience. And then I came back from the weekend and um, I sort of, I was a runner at the time, kind of a jogger really. And I went for a jog and I had this vivid experience of magical power. And it and my watch stopped after the run. And, it, and this is a social world in which people said that if you experience magic power, then your watch will break. Yeah, this I, I was wearing a really cheap watch that was made and bought it on some street corner for five pounds. And it was it was raining. It was perfect, it was a perfectly reasonable thing for the watch to break. But I remember having this experience of feeling the magical power, reenacting this, this story of the weekend in my, in my mind and really feeling something different, feeling stuff flowing through me and coming back to the end of the walk and looking at my watch. And I saw that the, 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 you know, the hands had stopped and I thought, I thought two things simultaneously. I thought, wow, maybe this stuff really works. And wow, this is the kind of thing that happens to people that leads them to think that this stuff really works. So, you know, it, it, it sort of taught me that the experiences you have are not dependent upon faith, a faith belief. They are, you know, they, they train your experience. They train the way you pay attention. That training changes your experience of the world. But it, it's not specifically tied to... A belief commitment, right? I mean, you because what you're doing is training your mind in a particular way to sort of sink into these symbols and these stories and to have them feel more vivid to you. And, and as you do that, you actually do shift your involvement to those stories, you shift your experience in your body. And, you know, and I can tell you something, you know, I, and I know something about how the shifting takes place and what kinds of experience, you know, what kind of categories of experience people have. You know, I think that the, your emotions can change and your experience can change sort of independent of your cognitive belief in the reality of the images that you're engaging with. So for, for James and I, this is fascinating because this is the stuff that we eat up. Totally. I'm, yeah. I'm wrapped. This is amazing. And, and for many of our listeners, but I think for, like one of the things which I really appreciated from it was that so often when we're sort of working with people who are part of the community or I'll go and do coaching, you know, the whole per the, the point of lifefulness is it comes from this place of like that life is a good thing, controversial position. I, this is not for nihilists, but everyone will say life is good. You know, everyone will sort of uh, know that and you go, oh, yeah, well, I've some, I know I've got to be grateful for things or like I, I know that I'm so lucky. I'm, but it's so rare that we actually feel that like it's it can be really hard to do it. And and when we do feel that, then those are the moments we often think, oh, yeah, this is why I'm alive. And uh, certainly in the work that I do, it is really hard to convey what it is like to have your experience changed by going and concentrating on a fact and by sort of concentrating on this idea that life is a good thing it can become real in the same sense that a god becomes real and that your experience will change and almost as though by treating life as though it was god even though it you know not at all Sort of not from a religious thing, life in that sense, the uh, secular sense, then 
you can end up going and changing how you are, how you engage with your life. And if you're able to do that as a group to then go and create communities which are as powerful uh, as churches and other religious communities. And so what I'd really love to do and is to go and explore this book with, with that lens and get you to go and talk through some of the different ideas from it. And then to come back to this thing of like, because so many people, they, we know that life is great. We know we're so lucky, but it's like actually making it become real. And I think that's the, when I was reading it, it's like, this is like how to make loving your life real and to really feel it. Uh, and, and I guess that one, it starts with this idea of a faith frame, which is what you sort of say, that like if you've got this idea that God is real or whatever it might be, in our case, that life is good and you wanna feel it, that you then are able to uh, go and create this way of looking at the world, which then goes and changes your relationship to all of your different things. It'd be really great to sort of like, just to explain that chapter, because I think it's a really useful way. You know, one of the central insights in your perspective and in any faith walk is the view that the world as it is um, is different from the world as it could be or should be, the way that you want to, and that can be the, the way that you, you know, want to experience the world. And, you know, and so, so from, from, from some very basic perspective, all of us are a bit more miserable and self-critical than we should be, than we know we should be, than we know we could be. And then from a broader, let's say in a Christian perspective, um, you, you know, you have all this story, you have all this, this story of, 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 of a God that is wise and kind and good and benevolent and all knowing, all, all powerful, and yet you've got the world as it is. So you've got this kind of, I think you always have what I would call a faith frame and a matter of fact frame. So you got the way that the, the, you know, I began thinking about this when I noticed that, you know, people were quite, people use the idea of God in a Christian context in a very specific and limited kind of way. I mean, they'll tell you that God can do anything, God is all powerful, but they never expect God to feed the dog or to write a term paper. And in fact, what you put, I'm much more aware of is that. If only, people, right? If only, you know, <laughs> in fact, people, you know, people are trying to get to the perspective where they can be like washing the dishes and feeling full of God. And that's really what they really want or what they're, another way of saying that is they want to be washing their dishes and, and, and aware of joy and possibility and the, 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 you know, the, the liveness of life rather than the fact that the water's too hot and they haven't finished their job for today and they're not going to get to, you know, that, that you know, that, that there's all this stuff that's gone wrong. So, you know, so you're always kind of trying to have this, this, this world as it should be and the world as it is, you're always kind of holding them simultaneously because you also do have to feed the dog and, you know, deliver your lecture to your class or, you know, to, to, you know, mail a package or so you've got all these mundane things you have to do. And you've got this world that you want to, you've got this way of experiencing the world that you would rather be in. And sometimes that way of experiencing is loaded with more theological ideas than others. You know, for you guys, it's not so loaded with theological ideas. For Christians, it's very loaded with theological ideas. But you always have these two frames and you have to kind of try to hold them together so that when you're doing the mundane stuff and you know putting gas in the car and uh, figuring out how to you know clean the dishes and do the wash you are trying to do that in a way that is more than the ordinary and the matter of fact and so then the question is how do you do that um and so this is the first thing I talk about in this book is the fact that there is this difference between the way people, and when I saw this in faith perspectives, I saw this, I saw this when people of faith went around their day-to-day -day life, they had this ordinary, how to function in the world way of understanding what needed to be done. And they had this, you know, the world as it is and the world as it could be. You know, and the, you know, the world as you'd experience it if Jesus was really alive for you, to, to use that Christian frame. 
And so then, you know, the challenge that becomes then for people how to sort of superimpose those as much as you can. And sometimes they don't fit so well and you have to always leave, again, you always got to feed the dog. But it's, you know, but to kind of bring them a little closer together um, is the, the goal of many people in these, in these faith pursuits. I'm going to give an answer which could uh, e as easily come from a Christian pastor, which is that I'd say it's the world of the ordinary and then the world as it is. In that, like, actually, the like the everyday, we, we sort of, we do know that life is amazing and I'm so lucky and I'm really loved and all of these other things. Could you go and sort of explain, uh, expand on that? So I, I thought what I saw is that, so yeah, this question is how does the world, the faith frame become real for people? And the folks that I was spending time with, they, you know, they mostly have um, a world of, of stories and figures. So that this, this, you might see this as the other hand of the mindfulness story. So mindful is, mindfulness is trying to switch your attention to the everyday, but sort of getting all the stuff out of your life, out of your mind sort of, you know, you know not, not thinking, not responding, just sort of being in the present and being sort of thinking free. I mean, I know that's a crude and terrible way of describing it, but if you are like, if you're a witch or you're practicing Santeria, or if you're a Jew, or if you're a Christian, you're really engaged with all these, these stories, these stories of, of beings with whom you could be in relationship. And one of what I saw is that in, in the different faith walks, you might say, it helps to make these beings, these, these spirits real for people if they come embedded in a narrative and if the narrative is vividly detailed and if the narrative has ideas about like how, how you point to the spirit, you know, how the spirit talks to you how you, how you can talk to the spirit and how you can recognize how the spirit responds. And part of this story is um, sort of the story about any, how any narrative becomes vividly real for people. And there's a sort of paradox that the richer, the detailed map of the storyteller, the easier it is for somebody to enter that world and to make it their own. So that's a little, you know, a little odd in the sound, but I mean, you know, so I grew up in the Tolkien generation, you know, so many people are now growing up in the Harry Potter generation. But, you know, one of the things that makes those stories so effective is these really specific details that you can know. So you can know the map of Middle Earth and you, you can know, for example, you know, what, when I thought about this, one of the things that came to my mind was, I don't know if you're, you're Tolkien fans, but you know, there's this moment. Okay, well, you know, there, there's, you know, Frodo and Sam are heading their way into murder and they've gotten separated. They've left the, the rest of their troops behind. And then, and Sam goes and he finds a rabbit and he cooks the rabbit at the, at the base of Sirith Ungle. And you can smell, and he's just, they describe the smell of the rabbit and the, these cooking pots that Sam brought, brought them home. And then they, you know, they, they, they encountered somebody else. And um, uh, uh, Faramir comes and finds them. But you know, it's it's it, but there's there's, it, there's so many details that you would think that well, this is just Tolkien's story. But as you live in it, as you retell the story to yourself, you're more able to retell the story to yourself when you know those details. When you can picture, you know, the, the uh, Galadriel's platforms. When you're kind of walking into the her forest and you sort of you can imagine you know where the hobbits were sleeping on these platforms in the trees and they kind of climb up these ropes and that you know, they hear rustling and the and the, and, and the brush beneath them I mean, it's the it's these like small details that somehow enabled it to come to life and make it and remake it as your your own and i saw see this in the, you know, the great novels that people become involved with. And I also see it in the great, in the stories of, of, of faith. And I mean, the Bible is like, um, you know, way more detail focused than anything that, you know, Tolkien or, or J.K. Rowling dreamed up. I mean, Harry Potter's only seven volumes. The Bible goes on for goodness knows how many. 
it's it, and so that's part of what I saw that there's that the paracosm is a shared imaginative world, and it's 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 um, made possible for people for people to enter and sort of to retell it to themselves, so it becomes their own imaginative world, but they share it with other people so they can expand it together. So you can talk about, I mean, I was really struck in the evangelical world, in this evangelical circles I spent time in, because you'd, you'd be good at Bible study, and people would be sitting around talking about the same dull biblical text. And, but, you know, they were able to populate it with their own stories about their lives. So they're reading Judges, but they're thinking about some encounter with their coworker that afternoon at three. And so, you know, it's because of the richness of the narrative that they're able to take it and make it apply to themselves and then make that narrative more real for them in turn. And so anyway, that's... So, well, that's so interesting. I, you know, I thought, sorry, James, I was just going to ask you because you are a big lover of many uh, sort of uh, slightly nerdish things. I was going to say, you're calling me a huge nerd. And it's true. Yeah. And, and so it'd be really interesting to think like with this idea of the paracosm, when you go and look at the things that you're really into, like how do you go and use them as a way to sort of interpret your life and to connect to sort of your work and because i just think that it's like it when i heard that i was like oh so many people are sort of doing this but not like fully taking advantage of this idea i feel like it's fascinating that you would make that comparison to kind of fantasy worlds and religious worlds on the one hand, I totally get what you're saying. I, I, I totally agree with it. I, I've talked about Star Trek as secular scripture, for instance, in some of my writing, because these are fantastical narratives that don't just talk about characters, but but encode values in the stories, right? And they help us how to live. That's, that's all a parable is, really, a story with values in it. And at the same time, what I find interesting about traditional religion, compared to something like Tolkien or Harry Potter, is that very often they have a lot of rules about what you're allowed to do with that text, right? You don't get a lot of fan fiction about the Bible, at least not not oh, that changes do. the story. Do you think? Do you think <laughs> oh, you do? Goodness, yes, absolutely. So you know, so, so first of all, it was a different kind of stuff, you know. So you can't go. It's online. not a lot of shipping, mm. right? Of, and it's not no, like, they're constantly all their dreams are constantly like fan, they write fan fiction in their heads they get visited by them oh and you know when a sermon is basically a fan fiction writ large you know so there's somebody's trying to explain to you something about the bible but they are going you know, it, 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 now admittedly they're not making snape have a gay affair with harry right but they're not you know, they're, but they're, and so that would be considered very inappropriate right there, there's no idea right. of sacrilegiousness within Harry Potter, right? You can do whatever you want. Oh, come on, mate. How about Insta if someone says Star Trek or Star Wars in the wrong way? Like the Avengers thing is like, is it that, entirely that's a, about saying- and That's like about the intensity of people's commitment to a particular narrative. I feel like there's more of a culture of remixing and inserting our own ideas into secular narratives than there is. Well, I mean, I might be wrong don't about don't. that. Have you not the history of the Reformation and the reimagining well, they were, of religions? They were. I, I'm actually reading right now about the history of Reformation, and there were huge debates about Tyndale's Bible because they didn't want it to be available for people to read. That's the exact yeah. opposite idea of remixing yes. cultural products and having them open to everybody. Yeah. But did it get? But did it get published? Well, after they published? burnt a bunch of people for distributing it. <laughs> yeah. But you, you can also, you know, I've also. I've forgotten whose idea this is. Like before you had the text available, you had these timpana, you know, you had, you had these churches with all these images. You've got a, you've got a priest who's telling people things about the, the text, but you've got all of these vivid images for people to see and develop and respond to. And I totally get the, the, uh, the observation that, that you know, the, the Reformation you know, they wanted to get the priests out of the story so people could could you know, get straight to the text and see what the what the true text was and the you know those who did not want people to have the text did not want people to run loose with the, run riot with their own imaginations 
they were already running riot with their own imaginations and i mean the the the, the life of the the you know pre early modern person of faith in the uk was basically you know an imaginative inscriptions of one's life into the rhythm of the of the christian calendar which we've totally lost trust touch with that today uh, except in some you know some churches but you know when I spend time with people in Bible study groups, you know, they're, they're really reading these texts and making their own model of who Jesus is, how they're going to experience Jesus, how how Jesus comes to them. You know, that, and they'll even talk about that. They'll talk about learning to pick and choose from your own experiences of being loved put together a model of who who a loving God is. There's this whole rhetoric about, oh, this person and that person, they're God wounded or they're church wounded. They've got a model of God. That's not the not a helpful model of God because they've taken a piece of their dad and they've they've wrapped that piece into their imagining of Jesus. But you know, their dad would occasionally was not the kindest person in the world. And so Jesus turns out not to be the kindest person in the world. And that's a mistake. They should change that. But of course, you know, you read the, even you read the gospels, a little sliver of the text. And there are many, many different Jesuses in that text. And so any particular representation of Jesus is picking and choosing and remaking and re-nurturing and allowing love as, you know, like it, it, demons, for example, you know, in which lives do demons matter? If you read the text seriously, Jesus spends a whole lot of time, you know, much of his time is spent casting out demons. If you're going to take the text seriously, you know, or literally, you've really got to believe in demons. And some people really do. But an awful lot of people, they just ignore that piece of it. Or they ignore that, you know, you can read Jesus as a rebel. You can read Jesus as a peacemaker. You can read Jesus in the words of, um, as a as a kind of a faculty lounge lizard, you know, the Jesus of Matthew, the teacher. I mean, there are many different, and, and it's when people are reading these texts, they're, re, they're remaking their image of God. And it's, um, it's what Ignatius, you know, Loyola wanted us, wanted people to do with the text. He wanted people to, I mean, he was, he more than other people did this deliberately. I mean, everybody does this, but Ignatius in the spiritual exercises, he lays out a roadmap for how you do this. You know, he had in the spiritual exercises, he said, you know, choose a text, you know, the Annunciation. I want you to walk into the Annunciation and make it your own. I want you to see the dust in the air. I want you to ask yourself how old Mary is. Is she scared? Is she round? Is she slender? What's the angel look like? Is the angel 10 feet tall or two feet tall? I mean, and then and, and Ignatius said, it didn't really matter how you imagine this. What mattered is that you came to the text and made it your own. And I think that's the thing there, which is so useful in this idea of a paracosm, is that we are, we're sort of using it at the moment in the Avengers, in, the, you know, Harry Potter, in whatever the series is that you're really launching yourself into. But it's then to say, okay, how can I then go and use this? Well, you've given an example there to really be useful to my life. And how can I then go and, you know, if you're listening to this, like, how can I then go and sort of really interact with these figures and sort of, you know, by imaginatively uh, interacting with them, make them become more real and sort of make them work in line with what my idea of the world is. You know, this sort of faith frame. I think that life is about creativity. All right, when you watch Breaking Bad, what does Walter going to be your patron saint of? Well, maybe patron saint of being an absolute bastard in the face of adversity or whatever it might be. But this, like it is, it really made me think of like, how can you go and give people more ways to sort of really create personal connections to things which are essentially abstract concepts to make it real? Yeah, so one of the things that I've started one of the groups of people I've started to try to understand recently are people called tulpamancers. So these are people, this is, so the word what, tulpa. What, so what word is it? Tulpa, sort of like tulip, but not T-U-L-P-A. And the word tulpa is supposedly refers to this, uh, a thought form that Tibetan Buddhists, monks, would learn to visualize and make make real, and so it comes from a 
you know, one of these wild texts by Alexander David Neal, who was this, you know, kind of Belgian um, kind of explorer in the early 20th century. She'd clamber up the sides of the have Himalayan mountains and meet people. It's just kind of a wild character. She so sounds she's, great. She's great. And uh, so, yeah, so she's, um, you know, it said that she put on, a, you know, men's clothes to, you know, make her way into an encounter with the Dalai Lama. And I mean, just a, a really interesting character. But in any event, so this is an aside in one of her books. But it, um, there are, I don't know, 30,000 people in different internet rabbit holes who um, have built up these, her ideas using the practices that I describe in this book. I mean, they're I mean, not, they, they, I'm describing the practices that they are using um, and in which they do, they do two things. They, um, so they decide they're going to create invisible friends. That's their goal. And a lot of them are kind of lonely, lonely people who want a friend and they're not psychotic. They tend to be pretty secular. They don't have any metaphysical commitments here. They know that these, these beings, these uh, are the tulpa. They know the tulpa is some, something they imagine. And what's cool about it is that they tend to use two techniques and the tulpa starts to feel real. One technique is what I would call inner sense cultivation. So they say to themselves, you know, I, I want, like in the case of one young man, he's going to make a fox. He wants a friend who's a fox. And he spends all this time, you know, seeing the fox in his mind eye, you know, looking at the whiskers, looking at the paws, looking at the ears, looking at the tail kind of trying to imagine the, the, the quality of the fox's voice. Fox speaks English to him, you know. Um, you know, so he, there's this inner sense cultivation using all his inner senses to make the fox vivid. And then there's this, what some people will describe just narrating their life to the fox. They just say, decide, okay, I'm gonna make a friend. I'm just gonna, this is how I imagine my friend. And I'm just gonna, describe my life to this friend. And what I am really intrigued by is that uh, for the people who stay in these groups, um, they start to have the sense that their friend feels autonomous. So the fox begins to talk back. The, um, you know, the, there are, the bird begins to talk back or the woman or the, you know, or, or the man uh, or, the, or you know, the pony. There are many different versions of, of and, and, and so they, they, they start to have this sense that, and, and then they create, that. so there's a, there, there are different stages in the responsiveness. People talk about locality, you know, they, they talk about autonomy, that first, you know, you, there's a that time when you kind of feel like you hear the voice, and then there's a time when you feel like there's physical movement. And again, I know that this is imagination, but they also, it feels real to them. And what I find so moving in that is the, the sense that we can do this. We can, if you allow yourself to enter a paracosm, to enter an imaginative world and to create these relationships, which can be comforting. Um, you know, have a quality of, of being. I mean, I keep on saying in our group chat, James, you do the next one, but that was one of the things which when I, and I, I will pass on to you after this. I was already. I so, sorry, James, that I, uh, so the founding thing of, for me, for Sunday Assembly and, uh, and then the Lifefulness Project is that my mum died when I was really young and that, when you were talking about this thing of imbuing a sort of abstract idea with uh, feelings until it ends up becoming real, is I realized that sort of unbeknownst to me without any sort of plan to go and follow by, and again, you said that this thing can happen just uh, by accident. And so there'll be some people who end up getting a negative uh, sort of idea which follows them, was that it, yeah, ended up going, you can go and sort of create an idea that ends up loving you back. 
And that was the thing which like life doesn't, you know, uh, like life can be like that. You can do it to, you can do it with creativity. You could do it with whatever is most important to you. And then James, I know that you have got like an amazing question lined up now. And now I'm passing it over to you. You can just say, yes, great point. Great point. Totally agree with everything <laughs> you said, Samson. So I, I was fascinated by your book and I completely believe everything that you're saying right now. I, I can totally believe that if we even take some story or characters that we know are fictional and cultivate the correct sort of mental relationship with them through practices and, you know, repeated ways of thinking about them, that we could impact our lives in a positive way. I still feel icky about it. Like there's something in me that says, I don't want to have a relationship with an imaginary friend, even if it's a very fulfilling relationship. It just feels like somehow it's out of integrity. Like it's intellectual integrity demands that we not do that. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I feel <laughs> like I, it just feels wrong to do that to me. Like So I think, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I get you. Um, I mean, I think if people who don't, it's, it's the people who don't feel like that, who find themselves in churches um, and, you know, who, you know, in a church that has a more uncomplicated kind of commitment. I mean, so I guess I, I observed a couple of things in this process because I, 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 I resonate with your perspective. So I, I don't make my own tulpa, for example. It's, um, and, you know, and I struggle with some of the, um, some with some of the belief claims and and that I see in Christian churches. You're very diplomatic. I love it. Uh, you want to get invited back? Uh, you just go. I don't have my own tulpa, and uh, I've never eaten a whole uh, brain of one of my rivals, uh, and I would struggle to do that unless I really disliked some of their academic work. But uh, yeah, very classic anthropologist. Well, no, it's. I I think there's some people who are very comfortable with um, a let's call it verbal behavior, saying that God is right there, God is sitting next to me, God is, you know, I have no doubts about God's realness. Um, I was struck by the fact that even people who really perform belief without question, they're behaving as if they're, they're, they're not um, believing without question. They're behaving in these very, they're, they're constraining the idea of God a lot. And as I began to notice that, um, I began, I mean, I was struck by the fact that when I was hanging out with these evangelicals, I mean, so I was hanging out with the witches, they were all full of doubts and, you know, this is all human and, you know, maybe there's something there, but we're going to see what we can do. And isn't it wonderful when we can experience something together? And so the witches were very, um, you'd be very comfortable in the witches world. Um, and <laughs> everyone always says that. I was, I was classic witching. Yeah, yeah. But you know, there are a lot of statements in the uh, conservative Christian world that would make you uncomfortable. Even there, I think people aren't really, you know, behaving as if they have this two-toned set of commitments: the kind of the faith frame and the, and the matter of fact frame. And that I think helps me feel more comfortable about, okay, so this is, you know, I don't have to believe that a Harry Potter is real or a Telpa is real or a, or a set of God beliefs is real in order to use them and benefit from them. So, you know, know knowing that even the most fervent commitments to supernatural realness are often, you know, people hold those those commitments differently um, than they hold, you know, is, is my table real? They hold that realness differently. I think helps one feel, um, gives me a little bit more comfortable comfort in trying to manage the imagined commitments 
I understand that. I'm trying to interrogate my own unease about it. And I think I've got a couple of thoughts that came to me as you were speaking as to why it might be. The first being, I live in the United States, as do you, but I live in Missouri, right? There, There are a lot of people in this country who really do believe in unbelievable false things, right? And I worry that encouraging people to do practices in which they sort of knowingly pretend might lead more people to actually believe in false things, but also just creates a cultural climate in which we're not really insisting that people believe the truth. I mean, uh, so I, I worry about that, but I also have spent a lot of time around liberal Christians and liberal clergy in general, And very often, this is when I was hanging around Harvard Divinity School, these are people who do not actually believe in God. I I used to say, you know, I've never met so many atheists as in Harvard Divinity School. They do not believe in God. But for them, it's a metaphor, right? For them, it is what we've been talking about. It's a a para, what was your word again? A a paracosm, right? But they're not explicit about that to their parishioners. And to many of them, they understand that to get jobs, their parishioners need to think that they really believe it, even if in their head they're interpreting it as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's dishonest, right? Because when you lead a spiritual community, the people who you're leading have a reasonable expectation that you, I think that unless you're explicit about the fact you don't actually believe it, that you do. So I don't know whether any of that makes sense at all, but... Oh, it makes such good sense. But but I remember a moment that helped me to think differently. And and it was a moment when there were two, and I want to use their names, but there were two uh, very well-known senior um, scholars of religion. And I I was at Esalen. They walked into a bar. (laughs) (laughs) Is this one of your famous bawdy jokes, Tanya? We were actually at Esalen, which is a place where people think the unthinkable all the time. It's, um, it, 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 and, um, you know, it's this place on the west coast of California that's spectacularly beautiful that was a child of the 60s. And, you know, there are these famous hot springs. And um, anyway, so I was talking to these two women and one of them said to the other, I really like this Episcopal church that I've been going to. Um, I really like being part of this community, but you know, if I if I really take it farther, I'm going to have to stand up in front of these. This is uh, I'm going to have to join, then I'm going to have to stand up in front of the group and say, I believe in God, and I'm not sure that I do. And the other senior woman said to her, Well, you know, it's a ritual. It's something that you do. And you know, and I guess one of the things I I've come to really like about these. Um, you know, like the, the Reformation liturgy, is that even if I don't believe it, I kind of, I'm accepting this. This is also true of the, of the, the Jewish services. These words that assert a commitment to the decency of the world um, that have been spoken by people for so many years, there's something that is comforting about asserting to the decency of the world and to the justice of the world in the long run that um, I think is, is, is moving. I find that moving. You know, what's actually good, you know, how real is that stuff? I, I, I don't know. I find that reference to, to Judaism actually very helpful because when I, I do feel much more comfortable in progressive Jewish spaces, a lot of my colleagues and friends here are pr- progressive Jewish clergy. And there's something, it, it feels to me when I go that many of the people there really believe the metaphysical claims that are being talked about but it's also understood that many don't it's just it's just accepted that many don't and yet they go for the community for the ritual for the richness and connection that gives to their lives and i feel like what once one of my rabbi friends said to me james we've always thought of you as one of us and i thought well why does she say that and i think it's because it's an approach to life and an approach to community that our um congregation kind of shares even though we don't share the particular history or the specific beliefs so that does help i guess it's something about if it's maybe it's just because judaism is very well established and there's a lot of secular jews and everyone knows that but when it becomes 
you know, magicians or tarot. Christianity. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it's, it just has a different flavor to me. And maybe that's a prejudice on my part. So help, help. That's very helpful. Thank you for helping me with that. I also think there's something which, I mean, uh, people would say to us about Sunday assembly, be like, oh, well, I mean, it's easy for, uh, it's easy for churches because they all believe in God. And you're like, if you spoke to a vicar and asked them for the theological soundness of their congregants' beliefs, they would be like, oh my gosh. Like the things which the clergy believe, all these really sophisticated ideas about God as a metaphor or how the Bible should be read. And then the sort of hodgepodge beliefs, which are not far off the sort of uh, early Christian church in Britain with probably with some sort of Jedi thrown in there for good measure. Uh, then yeah, that's something which is quite often the case. There's that uh, distinction like that there you've got this chapter on how the mind matters and how the because again i think that's something which i just so many people i speak to of uh is, is really relevant to them of how can you actually sort of turn an idea into a physical feeling and I've, i say that i've said this in so many podcasts because it is that difference between knowing that you're loved and feeling loved there is an ocean between that and so many of us sort of know that we're lucky or know that we should be grateful, but it's it's a, a techniques to how to bring that to life, which I think is why this book is so useful and, and fascinating. So yeah, please sort of delve into that sort of physicality would be great. So I, one of the things that I've seen, and it's it was true in this chapter that I wrote about, and that's we've since um, you know done more work, and it turns out that it's true in five you know in this in our in the project that i ran in five countries in the, in the world when people think of their mind as sort of permeable to the world when they imagine the thoughts can kind of move kind of an act in the world and they, they could, and you could say well they're really committing to when people think about prayer as effective or witchcraft as effective or curses as effective they're more likely to feel magical power and supernatural power. And so, you know, why is that? I think I could give you a long song and dance about that. I think that people, I think that the experiences that we call spiritual experiences are often um, interpretations of experiences that are sort of between the mind and the world. And when you allow them to, to feel more real, they flower into a kind of richness. And then that's very powerful for people. So when people feel, um, you know, Holy Spirit, when they feel a magical current, when they feel, um, you know, the, the, the force of davening in a, in, a, in a Jewish prayer, when they feel it, then it gives um, great support for the idea that there might be something more. And that is, so I, I can show and that these, and these feelings that people have, these, these physical experiences, hearing a voice when you're alone, seeing something that nobody else can, can um, see, uh, feeling that, um, feeling the a spirit wrap its arms around you, uh, feeling um, this kind of force move through you when those experiences are, 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 are terribly powerful um, and, uh, and people are more likely to have them. We know that you, you're more likely to have them if you um, practice, if you do inner sense cultivation, you're more likely to have, it, have them if you're open to having them. Um, that you're more likely to have them if you're able to get caught up in your imagination, uh, which doesn't mean that necessarily you're imagining them. But again, if you're if you if you're somebody who's able to, who's comfortable blurring the boundaries between the mind and the world, you're more likely to have these powerful, unexpected experiences. Well, I think one of those the, the really interesting words you've used, and it's popped up in a few of our interviews, is this idea of discernment, and and I think that's where this idea of the faith frame of like how your view of the world then it goes and sort of you're talking about like this inner sense cultivation that you actually go and 
do some exercises so that starts to sort of become real. You've got this sort of paracosm, these all these different figures and ways of sort of connecting with them. And because they're so uh, lifelike and they're so detailed, you start to feel this relationship as though it's real and you do different things to go and bring it to life. And then discernment is when you have a sort of experiences that you that you're really reading into them. So it could be that like you feel really happy and then that is not just sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm happy. It's like, oh my gosh, this shows me that sort of life is incredible. I am so blessed, whatever. So that was sort of my takeaway from it of that. And then if you're able to then go and connect uh, that feeling to an idea which uh, you've gone and cultivated, which starts to have some real power, this tulpa, this little, uh, your fox, which just loves you so much. And you're just like, oh my God, I just connected to how amazing life is. Yeah, you talked about losing your, your mom a while back. And one of the things that I, you know, began to learn a little bit more about is that folks who lose somebody that they, they love, um, many, many of them, like 80% of them, have some kind of experience of that person after the person has, has left. You know, they, they see, they hear, they feel, they, they have, you know, they're touched by, they smell. Um, and what's striking in the research is that for some people, um, they can cultivate that sensibility so that they... It, it, it remains a relationship for them. It's, uh, and there are now places that will teach you how to do this, um, which doesn't mean, doesn't mean that people are mistaken about whether the person is, is dead, but it does mean that in some sense, they retain the presence of that person with them, which if it's a loving presence can be pretty powerful. So in my sort of interpretation of sort of what happened is that like that sort of ended up being displaced in a sense onto life, just that sort of need or sort of like that sense of missing love. And then through, because you can't just walk away from your mum being dead, it meant that it was something which ended up being cultivated every day, combined with this cognitive frame that life is great. And then, uh, you know, as you said, became a sort of in a sense cultivation and now just like an evangelical i can't stop banging on about life and really wanting everyone to love life and wanting to gather people together so that they can have a great life and shouldn't we all be oh and if you just think about life it makes your makes your hair stand on end and you want to go ah it is truly exhausting to work with him Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> and James, what were some of the things which which we might not have covered, which you really took from this book? Well, were there any others before we discuss? Yeah, I, I'm just really intrigued by whether there was a particular practice that you took from this that you continue to do yourself. Like, did you learn anything that you've kept up? Um, oh, yeah. No, so I go through bouts of kind of meditation or inner sense cultivation or sitting or taking time. Um, I, I think that I came to think of prayer as a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy where you're sort of reminding yourself you're having these thoughts and you, you sort of remind yourself that these thoughts, you know, when, when, you, when you focus on gratitude, you're shifting your attention away from, oh my God, I gotta do this too. Wow, I get to do this. Um, and so that doing that kind of thing, I mean, one of the sillier things that I have taken from it is that, um, it's actually incredibly useful, is that um, I, I um, allow myself to fall asleep to Winnie the Pooh. I know this sounds ridiculous, but it's, you know, so Winnie the Pooh is a story that comes from out of my childhood. My father used to read me these stories and uh, you know, in, in, when you an audible has these timing mechanisms, so, you know, so you can listen to fifteen minutes of something, and it turns off. And so, and I realized, well, you know, I want to enter a kind of a happy paracosm. Well, you know, the hundred acre wood is pretty. You know, that's a world that's familiar and soothing and present. And so, 
anyway, that's what I do these days. I kind of, you know, cycle through like five of these stories. And if I wake up, I, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, I, I, you know, and, and, and it's, I, I turn on one of these stories, I fall asleep. It's, um, and, and, it, and it works for me. And That's other people wonderful. use, you know, other people use different, different stories, other, other stories are more ferocious for people. But for me, that's, you know, helpful, safe, calming, externalizes a certain amount of joy. Thank you. I think that's lovely. Yeah, that's great. Hey, thank you so much for this, uh, Tanya. It was really a, a great conversation. Yeah, and uh, folk, go and please go and uh, uh, go and get that. How God Becomes Real is your book. And uh, yeah, all the best in uh, all that you do. I really hope that we uh, re-encounter each other and have other uh, occasions to talk because you're great and uh, del as delightful to spend time in a podcast as you, you are in a book form. So there we go. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a really good conversation and good, good questions. Uh, what do you take from that uh, then, James? Oh, I mean, so much. I just feel like oh, there was so much richness in that conversation. Firstly, just that central idea that it's not actually about beliefs, that religious practices can work even if you self-consciously understand that what you are doing is relating to a non-real phenomenon. You know what I mean? Like if you know that God or whatever you're talking to is fictional, the practice can still work. That's pretty neat. For me, it's more about how, like, if you can do that with something which isn't real, uh, I, it's actually, okay, how do you go and do this for the things in your life that you would love to feel real? And it's uh, when we spoke to, or I spoke to Liz Oldfield, and, uh, and she was talking about what she got from her church, the way I... Uh, saw her church she said well we're, we're lucky because we get to believe in God I was like no it's like, like the advantage that the religions have isn't uh, the cognitive ideas because life is just as amazing you, you and I would agree as God as whichever it might be and you know we also value relationships just as yes. much but what they have got is systems of feeling and then what we didn't get into with, we touched on it with the inner sense cultivation, is this huge emphasis on talent and training that you can go and learn how to do this, surrounded by other people, and then also the right people to teach you how to do it uh, as well. Uh, yeah, that's for me this thing of like, how can you make people's lives feel as incredible, wonderful, and loving as god because they are just as incredible yeah i think it's it's so tantalizing and yet it is really for me kind of like a, a fruit i don't want to eat in a certain way and that it just is scary to me to start to encourage people to think well it doesn't matter if this is actually true i'm still going to invest my mental energy in it and i just i guess i'm not wired that way it doesn't it really bothers me but I'm, i think we might be speaking at cross purposes here is in that like i'm not talk i'm talking about the way that you feel about your life itself yeah i no not, right not not imagining not imagining anything which is invented. which is the question i guess we have to answer which is can you take what she's talking about an orientation towards a goal an idea a life or something and can you apply that to totally naturalistic phenomena or just your actual own experience i think that's the kind of question we have to solve i i that's so funny because when i read that book i thought it would be i think this is the thing i thought that would be blindingly obvious <laughs> but that is for me i and, and i guess this is when i read those books is that like i see through them like an x-ray on how this is totally applicable to your own life and so for instance when she started speaking about and i'm not saying that this is like i think this is just a different mindset or like maybe or, or having sort of learned this lens but when she speaks about like parasocial i was like oh that thing and so that's the idea that you can have relationships to 
uh, non-real sort of people which feel real. And she had that example of, there's a Charles Dickens novel where people wrote to Charles Dickens because it was serialized when they realized that, uh, I can't remember whose baby was gonna die, because they felt, they were like, no, that cannot happen. They felt physical pain and or, or physical pleasure. And that, yeah, that is, yeah, that's what we feel like we have those relationships to like abstract ideas anyway, but like how can you go and then say, all right, we can go and think about uh, like instead of imagining those, she speaks about being given a picture by a magus or a wizard, yeah. one of her witchy people and they're going, all right, what happens if you imagine your perfect room in your perfect house and really bring that to mind and go and cultivate that inner sense. You're not like, there's no lies there. It's just life as it is, but like really engaging with it. Uh, so uh, I find that re I find that really interesting that we, even though we speak about this the whole time, that I, I have just got a slightly different lens to you on religious things. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it may be, uh, it might be part of, I don't know how much of it is the fact that all of my work in this is in the in the states where people really are religious you know in a way that it just isn't the case anymore in the united kingdom and that that really affects how i think about attempts to attempts to secularize religious practices i'm working in a context where the vast majority of people actually believe in magic you know they actually believe that that this that you are talking to an actual god and that prayer actually does do magic things and that vast percentages of people don't believe in evolution and don't believe you know the earth is very old and all these other things it's like well in that context it takes on a different flavor to secularize religion it's not a dead thing that we're taking the pieces of and trying to put them back together it's a, a living and often malign force that has to be treated with care yeah 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 that's often the people who were part of Sunday assemblies in the US were like, had, you know, yeah. really painful experiences with the church. And so they found it harder to go and look at it as that you could learn from it. And I think that's one of the reasons why we Sunday assembly ended up in the shape that it did, because in the US it would just be, you just sort of have a very different relationship to these traditions. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. What a great convo. Thanks, Sanderson.